The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. To access inner resources to create the most productive, loving, and joyful life, Each of us needs to awaken to explore in depth who we really are. Welcome to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. Today, we'll learn what our past lives can tell us about our present life and understand how our beliefs create our reality. Now, here is Dr. Joe Mancini. Good morning, everyone. I'm Dr. Joe Mancini, your host for Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. I'm a certified clinical hypnotherapist and spiritual counselor in private practice in Maryland. And now, for those who are new listeners, I want to speak briefly, as I usually do, about the overall focus of the show. In various ways on this show and every episode, we will examine how to access inner resources to create the most productive, loving, and joyful life. To accomplish that goal, each of us needs to awaken, to explore in depth who each of us really is. To recognize oneself as a compassionate, multidimensional being made of God stuff. And to accept responsibility for being the co-creator with all that is of every bit of one's reality. This series of 13 episodes that began on August 13th will focus on what past lives can tell us about who we really are. My guests and I will examine several related topics such as the true nature of past lives, soul mission and karma, the multidimensional self, reincarnating soul groups, intact group past life regression, soul contracts, how to change past lives, natal regression, and other such topics, including using past life regression to capture lost history, our topic for today. A further aid to this exploration are the concepts about past lives and other metaphysical matters that were voiced by Seth, the energy personality essence channeled by Jane Roberts from 1963 to her passing over in 1984. Rich Kendall, one of the so-called New York boys who attended Jane's ESP classes in the early 70s, shared with us at the beginning of the series some of Seth's ideas about past lives. You can access that show and others by going to the episode directory on my Voice America homepage. And now to my guests and topic for today. On my show, we do a lot of -of out-of-the-box exploration about who we really are. And this episode is no exception. And what you will hear today is a narrative about the Jeshua phenomenon that is in many ways far different from the established story. So I invite my listeners to open to a new way of viewing that amazing series of events and to experience what resonates and what doesn't resonate. Joanna Prentice and Stuart Wilson are authors of several books, including a trilogy on the Essenes that very important group that supported Jeshua's mission. That trilogy focused also in large part on the figure of Mary Magdalene. Joanna and Stuart will discuss with me how they work using regression techniques and with the channel help of an angel named Alario to capture otherwise lost history. 
from the past life perspective of a Daniel, a friend of Joseph of Arimathea, they reveal Jeshua's healing in the womb with the help of the Essenes. Joanna and Stuart will tell us also how they facilitated other regression subjects to reveal the real and extremely powerful significance of Mary Magdalene. And now I say good morning, Joanne and Stuart, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Good, good morning, and I just want to say thank you very much uh, for having us on the show, and I've also been listening to your past talks with the various subjects which I found fascinating, and it's um, added to, to my knowledge. I particularly liked the one um, with, with, with the children. I think it was Carol Bowman. Yes, it was, and thank you very much, and you're welcome. So, what I want to ask you first is this. How did the two of you first come to do this work, and why? Well, I'm going to start. Um, I was studying humanistic psychology, and as I'd already started to remember previous lifetimes in dreams, meditation, meeting people and places, I found it was a bit too narrow. Um, So I trained as a hypnotherapist and a past life therapist with Ursula Markham. Um, years before I'd read There's a River, which is about Edgar Case, which you probably know, but maybe yes. some of your listeners yes. don't know or have heard of him. And, and I found this very fascinating. I'd been doing past life sessions for several years when a whole series of interesting past lives were relived by my clients, um, starting with a calf house. And then when the lies with Jesuits started, many people who had, had, who had been the scenes started to show up. Um, but I never advertised for them. Um, at the time, we were contacted by a spokesperson from the scene Brotherhood and Spirit and asked to write a book based on these sessions as it was time for the truth to be told. Mm-hmm. But we were also asked not to tell the people who came to us that we were writing a book, nor the stories people were telling us, so as not to color their personal accounts. Then mm-hmm. I hand over to you, Stuart. Well, um, I think in my case, I was always moving in this direction. I had a spiritualist mother who was trained by the White Eagle medium, and I spent 30 years in the esoteric tradition, Blavatsky, Bailey Steiner, but all that seemed rather academic to me. I wanted to see how these ideas would work out in practice, and past life work gave me the chance to do that. So, Joanna, was, uh, was Stuart one of your first clients who, who were able to uh, access that period of history? He was not one of my first clients, but he, I worked with quite a few people before he came here, but he was the first person that I remember doing a life with Joshua. I don't think I had anybody before you. No, I don't think No, so. I think mm. you were the first. Mm. So when... when years ago, so memory's a bit vague. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you did the first regression, um, Joanna, with Stuart... Was there a particular purpose in mind? Did you direct him to go to a particular past life? How did that start? No, I think it was, we'd done 
a bit of experimentation mm. with past oh, yeah. lives before because um, he was sort of quite intrigued. And uh, I think it was just one of our regular, you know, let's see where you go today. Uh-huh. Do you remember it like that? Yes, I do. I think that there were a series of quite minor uh, lives before that, and then uh, we started going into the life of Daniel, yeah. Mm. And what was the reaction of of both of you when you realized that Stuart was connecting with his past life persona, Daniel, and it was during the time of Jeshua? What was your first reaction? Were you shocked? Were you... Surprised, we, excited. We, we were surprised, I think, mm, yeah. and, and really interested. Uh, we thought, oh, this is a chance, this is a, a window on a world we otherwise couldn't get information, much information about. So it wasn't so much the life of Daniel that was of importance to you, although it was um, uh, also critical. It was what he could reveal about the events that were transpiring there at that time. Is that correct? That you started to get more in, yes, into yes, that? Yes, I think so. Particularly his friendship with Joseph of Arimathea. It was just so fortunate that uh, he grew up together with Joseph. Their, their parents uh, knew one another, families knew each other. And uh, that gave us really a window into Joseph's world. So tell us about that. Tell us a little bit more about Joseph's world. Well, Joseph turns out to be, in effect, the chief executive running the whole scene operation at that time. Mm -hmm. He was very low-key. He doesn't get much of a mention in the biblical account at all. But he was, uh, in his time, a very major player within the Essene world. Uh, His sister is Mary Anna, known to the world as Mother Mary, and so he is the uncle of Jeshua, and that puts him in a unique position, really, to see all this unrolling. He had a large uh, fleet of ships because he was a tin merchant in a very big way, Uh, so they provided both transport and an information network and he coordinated the work of the communities so the whole of Scene Brotherhood could move forward with one intent. He was the kingpin, really, of the whole operation. Let's backtrack a little bit and uh, have you tell my listeners about the Essenes in general. Mm, yes. Uh, 2,000 years ago in Israel, there were really three main groups. There was the Pharisees who controlled the synagogues, the Sadducees, who controlled the temple in Jerusalem, and the Essenes, uh, who didn't believe in making sacrifices, never went to the temple, and lived mainly in communities. The Essenes were the most advanced and progressive group, really, for their time. They practiced complete equality between men and women and were known as great healers and had a tradition of teachers of righteousness into which Jeshua fitted. They supported Jeshua through teaching when he was young, transport on Joseph's ships. He made several visits to England, for example, and uh, later on providing safe houses for the disciples to rest during the ministry. And they were quite secretive, were they not? 
very, very, very secretive. Um, they knew that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like what they were doing, which was studying all of sacred literature that they could get their hands on from lots of other places in Israel, from, from Egypt, from Persia, uh, from the Pythagorean material from Greece and so on. The Pharisees did not believe in any of that. Uh, they practice, as I say, complete equality, and that made the Pharisees very nervous because they believed in patriarchy. So there was a real clash on a number of levels with uh, the other Jews in society around them, and that made them secretive, yeah, and it made them uh, inclined to live in their own communities and, uh, you know, keep themselves to themselves. Joanna, when I first asked Stuart about uh, the Essene secretiveness, you chuckled. I'm wondering why. Well, I was talking about the secretivity of the Essenes Mm. because, um, you know, with subsequent clients, that was one of the um, first things that we had to assure them that they could actually speak out and they were with um, fellow Essenes. And so that's why I was chuckling about it because that... That has been, well, it wasn't really a hurdle, but it, it, it potentially could have been. So you were able to tell people that, for instance, Stuart was definitely one of the Essenes in the, in the persona of Daniel. What about you? Did you see, see or connect to a past-like persona in that time period as yourself? Well, yes, I did, but not an awful lot of information. I mean, mainly I've been more in the row of asking people about their lives. The first lot of people that came um, that uh, remembered lives with Jesuits, uh, they were mainly men, weren't they? I think initially they were, yes. Although some of them were females, but had been males in that life. Um, So they didn't know what what, what we were doing. Um, But of course, so... It was a kind of a surprise for them. But the subsequent people, um, they had read our first book. And because of the first book, they were drawn to us. And so many of them came because they had vague memories of being in their scenes and they wanted to explore it more. So that first book stimulated um, in its readers an awareness that uh, these people were the scenes in that past life. So mm-hmm. the, the book was a stimulus. Yeah, oh, yes. it, it really struck a, 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 a bell with people. I mean, the amount of people that have written and said, oh, gosh, you know, we really, really related to what you wrote in our, our book. And a lot, I mean, we've had, oh, just amazing letters from people um, all around the world um, not necessarily that they, they came in to do regressions, but um, I've been sort of kind of overwhelmed by how much correspondence I've had from people because it's obviously touched a memory with, with, within so many people. And so did um, some of these people from, from other countries um, come to, to see you or have uh, regressions by Skype or phone or anything like that? Uh, mainly they came to see me. I did try a regression on Skype, um, but I wasn't actually very happy about it. was lady in America. I wasn't very happy about it because um, you can't feel the energy the same way. Yeah. And um, 
I was sort of like, you know, because they're in front of the camera, they, they have to be more sort of awake and aware. It, 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 it just didn't work very well for me. I, I really like to work with, with the people. Also, the thing is, if you're working with somebody new, you've got this thing of, that you need to relax them first and make them yes. feel at home and everything. And somehow, with just going on Skype, you don't, you don't quite have the same rapport. And, and I'm also a healer, and I do them actually more for healing than for the knowledge. And um, so therefore me, and I'm very intuitive when I work, so therefore for me feeling the energy and being able to bring the energy through to people um, is really important to me, which you can to degree in Skype, but not, not, not the way you can as if you're in person with somebody. Because you feel you can feel their vibration in person, yeah, yeah. Uh, much and, better. I mean, this was the amazing thing about doing this series of lives. Uh, the energy was just incredible, which is what gave it its authenticity. And when people used to talk about doing the journeys with Josia and the joy. I mean, the energy in the room would really change, you know, and, and the feeling, I mean, it was just blissful. It was just kind of out of this world. But also the extreme was when they went to the confusion and the time of the crucifixion. It was just, you know, so, so opposite. And so many of the people that came in obviously were carrying that trauma within the cellular memory and they needed to come and uh, release that. And um, fortunately, we live in a very quiet place. I mean, I don't think I could do it in a regular therapist office because it was very, very traumatic for a lot of people. We will uh, get to that um, after the break. But I want to um, say to my listeners that when I was reading um, Joanna's and, and Stuart's books, especially about... Um, uh, the time that we're talking about, I could feel the energy, uh, especially of those who described meeting Jeshua. Mm-hmm. That yes. that came through the the words in the te- the text. It was amazing to me and provided their own sense of authenticity. We'll get a chance to talk more about that, um, but right now we have to take a break. You're listening to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. I'm Dr. Joe Mancini, and we'll be right back with more from my guests, Joanna Prentice and Stuart Wilson, authors of books capturing through past life regression and channel information, otherwise lost history about the Essenes, Jeshua, Mary Magdalene, and the female, the other female disciples. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you thought that there may be more to your life than you know? Maybe you're puzzled by coincidences that seem to happen out of nowhere. Or possibly you have a sense of deja vu in a place you have never been before. What about those dreams that seem to materialize right before your eyes? Or bring startling, clear images of loved ones who have passed over? These are only a few of the great many topics that you can find much more about by having a hypnotherapeutic session with Dr. Joe Mancini. Dr. Joe is a clinical hypnotherapist certified by many national and international hypnosis organizations specializing in spiritual hypnotherapy. Dr. Joe can help you discover much more of who you really are and why you came here this time around. 
Joe's clients repeatedly emphasize his vast spiritual knowledge, amazing skills, and great heart. He establishes a safe, caring environment in which individuals feel free to be all that they are. Call Joe at 301-526-2043 or reach him by email at soulserver at erols.com to find out more. That's 301-526-2043 or by email at soul, S-R-V-R, at E-R-O-L-S dot com. Be visionary. Be extraordinary. Be the change. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Listening to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. To reach Dr. Joe Mancini or his guest, please call into our program at 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email to soulserver at errols.com. That's soul, S R V R, at errols, E R O L S, dot com. Now, back to Explorations in Consciousness. Welcome back, everyone. This is Dr. Joe Mancini hosting Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. I'm talking with my guests, Joanna Prentice and Stuart Wilson, authors of books Capturing Through Past Life Regression and Channel Information, Lost History About the Essenes, and the Relationship Between Jeshua and Mary Magdalene. What I'd like to start with, uh, partly because I just mentioned it, this channeled information. Uh, through uh, the angel named Alariel that filled in a lot of details uh, that were not given through the regression subjects. Would you talk about that phenomenon of meeting the angel? And mm. uh, Yes. Yeah? We encountered Alariel through a past life process. Uh, actually, uh, it uh, happened when we were searching our um, Atlantis book. Uh, I was a character at that time, uh, an architect in Atlantis called Arnquell, and Arnquell had acquired um, what we were told was a very interesting source, but in order to access this source, we had to ask him a question we knew he couldn't answer, because that would make him go back to his source. And so we constructed a question about the, the future from his perspective, uh, and uh, that put us in touch with Alario. Um, Alario um, transformed our work, really. Uh, he gave us so much detailed information. Um, and, and this is uh, something that people may not realize. If you actually ask someone who had a past life 2,000 years ago in Israel, for example, how many female disciples there were, they might say, oh, oh there are a number of them. I see them all the time. Many, many. But they wouldn't necessarily know exactly how many. And Alario was able to tell us 72 and 72 male disciples, making 144. So that was the kind of information he gave us. Uh, and he was able to give us an overview as well. Uh, and a good example of that is when he talks about karma and says, uh, Jeshua and Mary Magdalene saved humanity from the possibility of future sins, not the burden of past karma. They saved you from all the sins that would have been committed if wow. the darkness had continued to spread. And I thought that was an extraordinary insight. We wouldn't have got that, I think, out of a normal past life process. 
that's that's an amazing insight and well worth thinking a lot more about. Uh, so Alariel was this source that provided, as you say, a great many more details filled in the blanks. And there and there were a lot of blanks. And one of the things, I don't want to um, actually go there where I'm, I'm going to mention uh, until the third segment. But Alariel gave a lot of information about Mary Magdalene's um, philosophy, and, and which was coincident with uh, Jesuits. Was that is that right? Yes, absolutely. He uh, he he gave us uh, really a complete background of Mary, how she came into the picture. She was uh, her father died at the age of eight, and um, uh, Joseph knew her father uh, and adopted her. Uh, it was very clear that she was a child uh, with uh, a remarkable destiny even then. Uh, obviously, her birth chart had been done. And uh, then she's brought back to Jerusalem to his house. And at that point, she becomes part of a close-knit family group around Jeshua. I think that transformed our perception of Mary. She's always seen as an outsider, somewhat, mm-hmm. with the traditional accounts. Uh, whereas actually she was uh, in this close-knit family group. So uh, how did, let's move now to talking about her and Jeshua as they move towards the climax of the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about their relationship up to that point and also what the Essenes were doing to help Jeshua uh, manage this unbelievable um, uh, event. Uh, Yes, uh, she was, of course, a remarkably empowered woman. She had been to the Isis Temple in Alexandria. She had become a high priestess in the Isis system. So she was a completely empowered being before the whole ministry starts. Um, This means she can give Jeshua a backup in, in many senses, providing energy, uh, providing information in other areas. Um, and uh, she was really his right hand at this time, very valuable support to him. Uh, the difficulty was that not all of the disciples, especially the conventional disciples, were able to accept her once they knew that she had uh, been through the ISIS training system. It was a, a general mystery school system, but I think out of prejudice, they um, uh, just looked at anyone who'd been through that system with great suspicion, uh, particularly Peter and his brother Andrew, actually. Um, poor Peter. He didn't know who he was dealing mm-hmm. with. He argued with Mary Magdalene all the time and tried to separate her from the main group. But she was married to Jeshua, so that was never going to work. Peter just couldn't accept the idea of a woman teacher. So he argued with every empowered woman he met, except, of course, Mother Mary. And, and why not with Mother Mary? Well, she was the matriarch for the whole group. And she was also a very advanced being. Uh, and she could sometimes have a look of steely determination in her eyes. Uh, nobody argued with, with Mariana. She had been a star in Agnaton's Mystery School 1300 years B.C. She could have taken ascension then. She was already a very advanced being, an advanced initiate, by the time she got to uh, this time with Jeshua. And uh, so she was clearly the matriarch uh, that no one would, would argue with. 
so she kept um, the peace, as as it were, uh, among the um, male and female disciples. Yes, she did. I, I think Mother Mary was very much a peacemaker within the group. Uh, if you take the first circle of twelve, the uh, 72 were arranged in six circles of 12. If you take the first circle of 12, that is led by Mother Mary, Mariana, uh, but she depended very much on Mary Magdalene as her number two, uh, and so uh, there was considerable leadership shown at that period. Uh, and really the, the first circle had in many ways the most difficult job to do. They did uh, more of the traveling around the, the, the villages with uh, Jeshua. Uh, they were backed up by the other circles, whose, uh, part of whose job was to ensure that um, issues of child care, for example, were, were taken care of. And they were able to move forward with uh, a remarkable um, common intent, really, a remarkable degree of harmony within uh, the whole uh, female discipleship system. So there were an equal number of female disciples with the male disciples? Oh, yes, 72 of each. Sadly, we, we only have, through the traditional account, we only have the 12 men, but there were a lot more men, uh, and there were all these female disciples as well who've simply been written out of the record, very sadly. Okay. So talk to us about the events leading up to the crucifixion and the roles that um, the main people took in, in uh, helping Jeshua. This was a very difficult and a very tense time. It was very clear that Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, was determined to put down any challenge really to his leadership within the religious system of Israel. Uh, it was very clear that it was only a question of time before he would close in on Jeshua and indeed all the disciples. So there was a great deal of nervousness and anxiety at that time. Uh, holding the whole group steady was uh, a major job. Uh, and Mary Magdalene was a remarkable, calming influence when uh, things got difficult, and they did get extremely difficult. Um, Joseph was uh, coordinating things quietly in the background, but he never uh, went uh, very public on his role in things until after the crucifixion. It was only after the crucifixion that the Pharisees began to work out how close he was to Jeshua, how close he was indeed to all the group of, of disciples. And so um, what happened when um, Jeshua was um, you know, picked up by the authorities and supposedly tried and condemned? What, what did the Essenes do in terms of energy matrixes to help Jeshua? They already had. They had been working for 150 years. They already had a plan to provide uh, the teacher of righteousness, as, as they saw him, uh, with support uh, when the drama reached its crisis in Jerusalem. So they had a system of, we would call them ley lines, a system of earth uh, energetics, uh, which they had worked on uh, with crystals to uh, strengthen them into a pattern of triangles 
focusing on Jerusalem. So um, etheric energy would be sent through this, uh, we would say, a ley line system. Uh, there would be uh, support at the meditational level uh, through uh, Essenes in all the communities meditating at that time. And there was, of course, a lot of angelic help, too. This was a massive operation uh, coordinated and planned for uh, by the order of Melchizedek, who were a major force in the background and were directing the Essenes. This had been planned for generations before that time. The Pharisees were reacting from day to day. But actually, the Melchizedeks and the Essenes working under their instructions were operating from decade to decade uh, on a completely different time scale. So, also tell us, I, I found this a, a very fascinating detail. Tell us about uh, what the, the group called the Kalu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm. had, to, had to do with all of this. The Kalu uh, really basically were used as messengers by the Order of Melchizedek. It's very seldom that uh, Order of Melchizedek representatives actually turn up in person. They did, after the crucifixion, to congratulate the Essenes on a job well done and to organize the winding down of the whole Essene operation. But mostly they worked through the Kalu, who were the, they were scattered wanderers by that time, they were the very last remnants uh, of the Atlantean people who uh, had become very isolated, very scattered. But they did a very useful job in taking instructions from the Melchizedeks and going around all the communities to see that everything was on schedule because they knew this drama was coming. They had prepared for 150 years for all this drama and... Uh, they were working uh, as a team, very much directing the Essenes, uh, and uh, the, the Essene Brotherhood worked uh, in a very coordinated way under their direction. So this was, as you say, a massive, massive undertaking, both on the earthly and spiritual levels. There were lots of entities and energies involved for such a, a transformative experience that was to come. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and considering the scale of the operation, that the, the uh, ley line system covered uh, a good deal of Israel and had to be done in the utmost secrecy, this, this was quite a remarkable operation, really. The, the, the overall objective of the whole thing was, of course, to anchor the energy of universal love into the matrix uh, of, of the earth. Uh, that uh, happened to a certain extent uh, before the crucifixion through the work of the ministry, but it reached a climax in the actual crucifixion process. And this was a major leap forward for humanity because it meant that the average person, the person of goodwill, could work with this energy, which had been worked with by initiates from the time of Atlantis, but was not really accessible to the average man at all. The average man and woman couldn't really work with it until it had been brought down and anchored into the matrix of the earth. And it was required that both a masculine and a feminine energy, i.e. Jeshua and uh, Mary Magdalene in particular, had to be... uh, cooperating in order for all of this to unfold? Oh, yes. The Melchizedek's always worked in a totally balanced way. Uh, 
um, uh, bear in mind that uh, this is um, a uh, vast service order operating in many galaxies and teaching the expansion of consciousness. They, they were teaching spiritual development, really, rather than religion. They would work within a religious system where they found it, but they were, they were teaching expansion of consciousness, leading eventually to ascension. So uh, that they did in a totally balanced way, uh, because if you're, you're working uh, across the galaxy with many civilizations, obviously uh, a completely balanced approach is more effective. And when people read um, the Essene trilogy, uh, they really get a sense of how important that balance is and how how difficult it was to keep that balance, as you said, because of, of Peter's patriarchal uh, sensibility. But it, mm-hmm. it, it did, and, and Jeshua pretty much kept it together along with Mother Mary. Yes, it, it, it was a very difficult balancing act because the disciples were drawn from a number of areas around Israel. Uh, it was deliberately not set up as an Essene-only system. Otherwise, people would have said, oh, yes, this is just another <laughs> strange Essene idea. We don't need to worry about this. It doesn't have any relevance for the rest of the population. It, it was deliberately they drew uh, disciples from all over Israel, all walks of life. Some were educated, like Matthew had been a tax uh, collector. Some were... were uh, relatively uh, not very, very educated, simple people, but of great heart energy. They uh, deliberately didn't make it an, an a scene and only operation. But that meant there were tensions in the group because they had different perceptions. Uh, the uh, people of lesser education tend to be the more patriarchal at that time. Uh, they tended to have a narrower view of things than the Essenes did. Uh, the Essene uh, disciples like John and Thomas, Philip, uh, had uh, a much more broader perception of things than some of the others. Okay. We are about to take another break. This is... Joe Mancini, and you're listening to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. We'll be right back with more from my guests, Joanna Prentice and Stuart Wilson, authors of books capturing lost history, particularly that of the time of Jeshua. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Have you thought that there may be more to your life than you know? Maybe you're puzzled by coincidences that seem to happen out of nowhere. Or possibly you have a sense of deja vu in a place you have never been before. What about those dreams that seem to materialize right before your eyes? Or bring startling, clear images of loved ones who have passed over? These are only a few of the great many topics that you can find much more about by having a hypnotherapeutic session with Dr. Joe Mancini. Dr. Joe is a clinical hypnotherapist certified by many national and international hypnosis organizations specializing in spiritual hypnotherapy. Dr. Joe can help you discover much more of who you really are and why you came here this time around. Joe's clients repeatedly emphasize his vast spiritual knowledge, amazing skills, and great heart. 
He establishes a safe, caring environment in which individuals feel free to be all that they are. Call Joe at 301-526-2043 or reach him by email at soulserver at errols.com to find out more. That's 301-526-2043 or by email at soul, S-R-V-R, at E-R-O-L-S dot com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. To reach Dr. Joe Mancini or his guest... Please call into our program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to soulserver at errols.com. That's soul, S-R-V-R, at errols, E-R-O-L-S, dot com. Now, back to Explorations in Consciousness. Welcome back, everybody. This is Dr. John Mancini hosting Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. John. Talking with my guests, Joanna Prentice and Stuart Wilson, about the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jeshua. So that's where I'd like you to go. Uh, Tell us exactly what happened during the crucifixion and the aftermath. Uh, this, This was, in many ways the uh, presentation uh, on the outer plane of something that had been experienced by initiates as a death initiation for centuries, but had never been shown uh, out on the main stage of the world. Uh, And um, this had been prepared for, the uh, uh, Melchizedek preparation for that, working through the Essenes, was meticulous. And they had constructed a secret tunnel leading uh, from the back of the tomb uh, under uh, Joseph's garden, because this was all Joseph's land, to a small house which he had nearby. Uh, And that meant that the tomb, in effect, could become a healing chamber. Uh, And uh, the healers could go down the secret tunnel uh, connect with the t- with the uh, with the tomb, enter the tomb, and it was like a commando operation. They had to go down the tunnel carrying oil lamps, get into the tomb, carry out the healing in complete silence, because there was only the thickness of the huge stone sealing the tomb, separating them from the Roman guards outside, and the Pharisees who might be sniffing around outside as well. And the uh, door from the tunnel into the tomb, I recall, was uh, on the inside fashioned like stone so that anybody who would come in would not see that? It was. It was. It was. Because eventually, um, uh, long afterwards, it would have to stand close scrutiny by the Pharisees. Uh, And they they had allowed for that. They, They realized that after the crucifixion, the Pharisees would be enraged by any rumors they heard of Jeshua's survival. 
or resurrection as it might have been perceived at that time, and they would have inspected the inside of this tomb pretty carefully. So all this had to be done very, very carefully to take care of the future problems. The actual healing process was remarkable, as I say. It had to be done uh, with oil lamps and in complete silence. Uh, One of the main healers was Laura Clare, who was uh, a sister of Jeshua. Uh, Another one was uh, John, because John was a major healer in his day. Uh, Another one was uh, Luke, who was a great crystal healer. So um, that healing operation had to be done, as I say, in complete silence, very very carefully indeed. Stuart, before you actually talk about the healing, uh, tell us about the condition of Jeshua when he was brought into the tomb after being taken down from the cross. He, of course, had slipped into unconsciousness by then. Uh, He uh, was remarkably fit. He had trained for this with the yogis in India. That was part of the of the um, job of being in India, uh, being absorbing other religious uh, systems, but also receiving training so that he could sustain what was going to be a very major impact at the physical level. So he was um, unconscious at that point. Uh, he couldn't be moved. Um, extensively uh, until he regained consciousness, so he needed massive healing, enormous amount of healing, uh, and they were only able to move him when he recovers consciousness. He's then uh, put on a stretcher, taken down the tunnel, and then lifted up into Joseph's house. Uh, Then there is more healing, and finally they smuggle him out of Israel, and he goes first to Cyprus to recover, Joseph had a big um, estate uh, on Cyprus, and then he goes via Damascus back to India. He could not have taught anywhere in the Middle East or Europe after that. Uh, If Caiaphas had uh, received any rumor that Jeshua had survived, he would have sent at least one assassin uh, to take care of it as he saw it. I just want to go take you back to uh, the healing moment. Um, Jeshua, as I remember reading, was a large part of his consciousness was out of his body. And out it had of body, to be brought, yes. It had to be brought back in. And what was the exact role of Laura Clare, his sister? Laura was Clare quite was young. a remarkable herbal healer. She was the sister of Jeshua. She'd... Um, has shown remarkable gifts in uh, use of herbs from a very young age. She led the team of herbal healers, really, uh, which was a remarkable job. And she used um, calendula, I think, mm-hmm. calendula uh, and, and other herbs to, uh, um, uh, to treat the wounds and so on. But this this was a remarkable strain on her. She was still quite young at the time. And it did affect her health in the long term after mm-hmm. that. There was a major impact. Uh, she was one of the people we had uh, a past life um, exploration uh, of, of Laura Clare's experiences in our second book, Power of the Magdalene. And that uh, account, of the past life regression when um, Laura Claire is talking about what she was doing. That is one of the most affecting 
of all of the accounts that I read, and I really invite my listeners to um, look for that because it really brings a sense of authenticity to all of this. She, you mm. can really feel this young girl and all her multiple feelings about um, the situation and her brother. So let me move you along. Um, so after the uh, crucifixion, what went on with the disciples and particularly with Mary Magdalene? The disciples and Mary Magdalene were, as you can imagine, in some state of shock and disarray after the crucifixion. Uh, some were in denial. They just could not believe this had happened to their teacher, who was such a strong force in their lives. They never believed this would happen. They didn't, of course, know the inner planning that the Melchizedeks had put in place, uh, that the uh, senior members of the, the Essene group knew, uh, they were only reacting from day to day, and they were certainly uh, in a state of shock following the crucifixion. Um, uh, the uh, high priest realized that his, his time had come, and he could start rounding up the disciples wherever he could find them. So he had men out trying to find the disciples. So it was very dangerous being a disciple, really, at that time. Wow. Okay. So... What was going on in particular with uh, Mary Magdalene? This must have been because she um, she was married to Jeshua, right? And and the she was married to Jeshua. She was in a very difficult position, really. Um, uh, she uh, uh, had to uh, hold a meditational state of calm as much as she could. Um, because it was very, very difficult for her. And in a sense, even though he survived, he will be lost to her again. Mm-hmm. Because although he could bilocate from, from the point of crucifixion onwards and could visit Mary Magdalene in this way, in effect, she lost his physical presence for the, for the rest of his life. He had to go to India. He could not have... Uh, taught anywhere in the Middle East or Europe after that. The Pharisees had followers everywhere. It would have been too too dangerous. And they, um, it also came through either Ilarial or one of the regression subjects that they had a child. Is that correct? That's correct. They had one child who was called Sarah Anna. Sarah simply means princess, so this is Princess Anna. She was like conceived, which means that uh, uh, genetically, she is the child of Mary Magdalene alone uh, in the process of light conception, and there's a whole uh, chapter on light conception in our book, Power of the Magdalene. Uh, in the process of light conception, the spirit moves down 12 levels in order to manifest the other double strand of DNA as we would now perceive it. So it's the, the spirit combining with Mary Magdalene to produce this child. Uh, light conception was well known within the mystery schools of the period. It would not have been known to the Pharisees, uh, but the initiates in the mystery schools were aware of light conception as a possibility. So I'm thinking that that reminds me of the traditional story of Mother Mary conceiving uh, without uh, physical interaction with Joseph is this yes. similar? Oh no, that was that that was 
perfectly uh, perfectly accepted by the advanced beings of that time. Uh, one or two uh, of uh, Joshua's disciples, like uh, uh, Mary and Joanna, were also like conceived. Uh, John the Baptist was like conceived. Uh, this this was not so unique an event uh, as one might think. It was. Um, fairly accepted in the mystery school system, certainly. Okay. So talk to us a little now about um, Mary Magdalene's uh, teachings, uh, especially after uh, Jeshua left. Yes. When Jeshua returns to India, Mary became the foremost spiritual teacher in the Western world. Uh, she was never accepted by the emergent Christian church, of course, uh, but that is, uh, in effect, what she became. She taught the Gnostics in, in Gaul and the modern France and on the island of Cyprus. She even came up to Avalon, the modern Glastonbury. Uh, and she taught on the island of Cyprus. They had eight midsummer gatherings over a period of 11 years. And basically both Jeshua and Mary taught a spiritual path of focusing love in the heart, and this was called the way. Uh, And this was um, uh, a time of a largely oral tradition, so it was broken down into five steps that you could tick off on the fingers of one hand. And firstly, prayer, not in the sense of asking Father, Mother, God for something, but rather a laying of your consciousness alongside the consciousness of God. Secondly, forgiveness as a regular evening practice. Thirdly, service. Fourthly, giving thanks. And fifthly, surrender, so that the soul can merge with the light and complete its journey. And Mary said about the way, she said, the way is not to be found in books or traditions or rituals or even in the teacher. The way is found in treading the path from day to day, guided by your soul and inspired by the spirit within. So love is at the core. Love Uh, is at the core of the whole system. Okay. Uh, And uh, really that distinguishes it from any ritualistic process which which, uh, does not have such a uh, a, a prime uh, focus on, on love. Uh, but also there's a clear distinction here between the path taken by the early church and those who followed the way. Uh, the Gnostics believed that you had to work on yourself. You had to be, if you like, uh, an element of your own salvation. Uh, and this, uh, this is not at all um, what the early church um, um, believes in. So Stuart, they believed uh, Stuart, in Stuart, what to us me. will be a modern approach. Stuart, excuse me. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, we're coming to a close today. So I want to thank you very much, um, Joanna and Stuart, for sharing with us some of the otherwise lost history of the Essenes and Mary Magdalene and Jeshua. Tune in next week when I will be interviewing Nancy Ubel, MBA and clinical hypnotherapist and Reiki master, about what the renowned psychic Edgar Casey has said about past lives and karma, as well as the effect of his perspective on her own teaching and facilitation of past life progression. Focusing principally on the past lives in Atlantis that Casey revealed in his readings for others, Nancy will share with us the main implications those past lives have for us today, especially since many Atlanteans 
have apparently reincarnated during the present time. This is Dr. Joe Mancini, your host for Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. May you all open to the peace of all that is in every moment of your lives. Thank you so much for listening, and a hearty good day to all of you. Thank you for tuning in to Explorations in Consciousness with Dr. Joe. Please join us again next Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We'll offer another enlightening program next week.